0: Church, um, we are going to jump right into Luke. We, a, we got, a, I don't have a lot of time, uh, but that's okay. We're going we're to get through uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, because maybe you've been sitting a little bit too long, I'm going to have us all stand for a reading of God's Word this morning as we jump in to continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. We're starting chapter 3. And I've said this before, we're not in a big hurry. We're taking our time because God's word is also good. Luke 3, 1 through 14. If you have a Bible, open it. I'm going to read it over us. It'll be on the screen. Or if you have a a device, you can read along with me in the passages we're going to be in this morning. Luke 3, 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Lituria and Trach- Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. That took some practice. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John and the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went up into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins." As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. "'Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. "'Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit "'is cut down and thrown into the fire.' "'And the crowds asked him, "'What then shall we do?' "'And he answered them, "'Whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none. "'Whoever has food is to do likewise.' And tax collectors came also to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do so. And then soldiers also came to him. And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. And be content with your wages. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living, that it is active, that it is is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts deep. Lord, these words, uh, they cut deep. These are strong words. And so, Lord, I pray that we would heed the call. We would hear your word, and that we would respond in kind as John is proclaiming here, that we would bear fruits as a result of repentance and forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, be here in our midst. We trust you today in Christ's name. Amen. Church, you may have a seat. Well, we're going to be walking through uh, these uh, 14 verses that I just read, kind of walking through these. Um, And what I want to do at the front end is give us a little bit of an outline of sort of each of these verses to sort of frame it of where Luke is telling us that John John the Baptist's ministry is sort of formed and fashioned. So the first two verses of this chapter, they give us the context of John. So I'm saying John, that's John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. No, he wasn't denominationally a Baptist, he was the Baptizer, right? And so, uh, so John the Baptist... Is, is beginning his ministry. So context, you got to go all the way back to when we first started. We learned of John's uh, birth. We learned about the miraculous birth. We learned about uh, him coming on the scene. And John, if you remember, is the final prophet before the Messiah is presented. So it's been 400 years of silence for God's people. 400 years of them wondering and waiting and waiting for a a word from the Lord, a word from God. What's he going to say? Where is God moving? What is he doing? And he sends his final prophet. And these recorded here in Luke are the first words, the first sermon, if you will, after 400 years of silence for God's people. And he comes strong, doesn't he? He comes real strong. And verses 1 and 2 set the context of John's ministry, John's public ministry. And it's a list, if you remember, and you've, uh, and you've been following Jesus and, you're a, and, and, you're a, and you love God's word, you recognize some of these names, though they're hard to pronounce, right? And they're the list of some of the biggest villains that we're going to read about as we continue through this gospel. These people... In power that he lists, Pontius Pilate, Annas and Caiaphas, all, these, uh, all these people in religious and political power that are just mentioned, that are here, are going to be those involved in the unrighteous death of John. And they're also going to be involved in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So Luke is writing this as he's penning this story. He's setting the stage, he's setting the scene, and John's ministry begins with these dark characters in power. Um, it it's, it's sets almost an ominous start of John's peculiar ministry that he already has, right? He wears strange clothes. He's out in the wilderness. He eats weird things. And then there's all these corrupt people in places of power in the religious system and in the political system. And this is the context that John comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. Church, real quick, just application for us. What does this mean? As we look at this, as we consider this, it means that no matter how dark our time gets, remember this, no matter how dark it feels with whatever people are in power or whatever your views about different political or religious things that are happening, no matter the circumstance, no matter the context, God can overrule it. Amen? He begins the ministry of the Messiah with the forerunner John in this dark point in history. So church, don't ever judge God's power or his ability by your present circumstances. And this is easy for us to fall into. The world is so bad now. It's never been like this in the history of the world. And everything is going so poor. Can you believe it's? Listen, Luke sets up, it's, it's bad news here there's some corrupt people there's bad things happening and God intervenes and he brings the brightest of lights in the darkest of times and he still does that today so take heart and then as you look at verses 3 through 6 Luke then summarizes John's ministry so Luke gives us sort of a banner uh, a banner statement of all uh, that, all that his ministry consists of and entails and it's in verse 3 And it says this, that John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the ministry of calling God's people to repent is at the very heart of John the Baptist's ministry. And so we're going to camp and we're going to spend most of our time there uh, today. There's, um, there's a lot of other things that we could go, but uh, we're going to camp there on this idea of what does it mean? What is a ministry of repentance? What does it mean for us to repent? That's not a word that we love. And we're like, oh, this is, I wish I didn't come to church today, right? It's like, repent. But this is the, this is the precursor to receiving the Messiah, And this is what his ministry is all about. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And then you go down to verses 7 through 9. If you're going to categorize what's happening here, Luke describes the manner of John's preaching. And it was stark, it was bold, and it was blunt. On purpose. Blunt, bold, hard words for God's people. No seeker-sensitive, fluffy, rainbow preaching here from John, okay? This was, I can imagine this was not a very easy message to swallow if you're the crowds. These crowds are coming from all these different cities. they are all kinds of different professions are coming to hear what's going on. If you read the text, they're all flooding in to hear this message of God that John is giving, and he greets them from all these different people, from this weird place in the wilderness. He's wearing strange clothes. He's a character, right? You're just like, this is so odd. And then he comes out the gates, and he greets them with phrases like, you brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Who told you to flee the wrath that is to come? I mean... (laughs) And they kept coming. They kept wanting to hear more. And then he plainly speaks of judgment, the wrath to come. And you get echoes of Isaiah chapter 30 and the the warnings that are brought against Israel and God's people of the wrath to come should they uh, abandon God and chase after pleasures and chase after all these other things. You get a shadow of it right here in Luke 3 with John the Baptist and his message. And he calls them, catch this. Not to just a lip service repentance, but to a life repentance. To show evidence of real gospel repentance by how they lived their lives and how they dealt with people around them. So he says, bear fruit. Bear the fruit of repentance. And, like, and all these people at the end of the story like, well, how do I do that? And then this group, how do I do that? And he's like... I mean, it it ties in perfectly and beautifully with the words of Jesus that Devin preached on last week. Well, if you have two tunics and someone needs one, the fruit of repentance is that you would be open-handed and live a generous life and give it to someone in need. That you wouldn't exhort people, you wouldn't take advantage of people based on their situation, tax collector, soldier. That you would be content with your wages and you wouldn't strong-arm people to get ahead and step on people underneath you. Justice, mercy, love. Birth, the fruit of repentance. Can you imagine going and hearing this? I was, I was just thinking about this. Can you imagine you get the word, you know, this, there's all this buzz on uh, Twitter or YouTube. There's this new preacher Boy, people are coming out to see him. and like, oh, yeah, I, well, I want to go check him out. He's like, he's drawing all these crowds. He's dynamic. He's like, I heard there might be a new book coming out. I, all these people, it, there's all this buzz about this new guy, and he's bringing it, and I want to hear what he's all about. And they're like, well, he's he's preaching in the woods and cut and shoot. You're like, what? <sighs> Would I, oh, well, oh, okay, well, let's be prepared. So you kind of arm up and you going. I'm just kidding. You go to cut and shoot and you go and you hear this new preacher and you're like, this is strange. I'm in the woods, but I guess there's like all these people and he's bap- all these baptisms and life changes happening. And it's just like this groundswell of excitement. And you, your friend invites you to be a part of this and you show up and John, the preacher stands up and he says, good morning, you brood of vipers. And you're like in the woods, and you're like, and you're like, is this, are you sure we're in the right place? And your buddy goes, Yeah, I'm sure it's gonna get better. He'll probably get to the good stuff here in a minute. He's just setting us up. And then John's like, Hey, you know the fact that you grew up in a nice, believing household and that your dad and mom are strong, uh, just uh, believers? He goes, Guess what? That doesn't matter. Your heritage doesn't earn you favor with God. In fact, uh, God can just look at these stones in this river that I'm in and call for himself up children of God of his own, should he need to. In fact, uh, <laughs> he's like a lumberjack, God is, and he's coming and he's laying the axe at the roots of the foundation. And anyone that doesn't bear good fruit, that just pays lip service to God, he's just going to throw all that stuff in the fire and you're going to be like chaff and you're just going to blow away one day. Okay, I'm leaving. You're like, what is the, What's happening here? This is John's message. Um, these are difficult words. These are strong words. This is the first prophecy from 400 years of silence, and God sends this word to his people. Welcome to church. Glad you're here at Risen. Um, What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Why is he saying it like this? A lot of you are looking at me like, that's a great question. You better tell me quick because I'm about to leave. Right? It's not even easy to say it out loud when it's not me, when I'm just saying what he said. It's uncomfortable. John is preaching like this, and John's preaching is is meant to be like this because he's meant to be like sandpaper. Anyone ever done any DIY home repair in, in the room? Yeah, three people have. I don't believe that. There's a whole billion-dollar industry just dedicated to this, like painting everything white. Who's painted something white in the last couple of years? Okay, good. Good. So if, if at once it wasn't white and you wanted to make it more Chip and Joanna-like and you needed to get it white, you can't just go and have like this brown lacquered thing and you can't just slap a coat of white paint on it because it won't look right. So what do you have to do? Well, you, first, you, you, none of us know how to do anything, so we YouTube it, and we figure out what to do first. Step one is you take some sanding blocks and some sandpaper, and depending on how heavy the lacquer is, you rough that thing up, and you just start getting all that paint off. If you actually do this for a living, you can correct me later. I'm sure this is not quite right. But the idea here is you have to rough up the surface of the paint. Why? Because if you just spray a veneer of new paint on something that's lacquered, it'll just fall off. It won't stick. You have to rough up the surface. You have to just rub the old paint off as best you can and create a nice environment for that new paint to stick. And you've got to do some more sanding and you've got to get it ready. This is exactly John the Baptist's ministry. He's sandpaper. He's preparing the hearts of the people of God for what's coming next. And what's coming next, he wants to make sure it's not a thin veneer of lip service. But that our hearts and minds are ready for the arrival of the one whom we've been waiting for, Jesus. The Lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world. So yes, he comes strong he's roughing up our hearts and our minds to get us out of our complacent places, to get us out of our complacent thought processes, and readying our hearts to receive the Messiah. He's not come for a thin veneer that will peel off in days ahead. He's not offering lip service religion He's not offering, oh, I heard about the new preacher. Let's go hear about him, and let's just enjoy sort of the culture of Christianity. But no, I won't bend a knee and bow down to the king. I like the feeling of the kingdom. I want to be a part of that kingdom, but I won't bend a knee and bow to the good king. He's readying our hearts so that it would be our joy to bow at the feet of our king who's coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not always fun. And so church, when we hear John's approach, I think we need to ask ourselves the question like we do with our home renovation projects and our DIY projects. Have we been too keen to impress our neighbors and our friends about how quickly we made everything look brand new? but we weren't willing to do what is fundamentally necessary to ready our hearts so that it would stay like that for a long, 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 long time. That's what John's doing. He's not concerned with popularity. He doesn't care if you like him. He doesn't care if you give him a good rating on Yelp. He's not concerned with the exit interview. He's He's speaking like this because he understands his purpose, that he is a dying man and he's speaking to dying men and women. And his directness and his bluntness jars our sensibilities because we don't talk like this. He's this last prophet and he's preparing a people so that their hearts and minds will be ready to receive the Messiah. He's the forerunner. He's preparing a way so that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his message and his words would hit our hearts and they would stick to us. And we would love them. Um, I'm teaching, this is terrifying uh, for any parent to enter into this new season. Sorry, Izzy, you're a preacher's kid. You're going to be the subject of some stories on the front row. I'm teaching Izzy to drive. So yesterday was our first, uh, first day out to go in the parking lot and learn to drive. And uh, it's just learn, learn some basics, sort of how to accelerate, how to brake, how to, you know, take a right turn and kind of try to stay in the lane, how to take a left turn. And stay in the lane, she she did wonderfully, she did great. It's kind of, the, you know, learning just all those basics. And so... Um, I didn't tell her I was doing this. I apologize. You'll be in counseling for it later down the road, I'm sure. Um, we'll get through it. I, you know, I, I'm sorry. It hit me this morning as I was driving here thinking about this message and John the Baptist and the way that he's coming and how he's saying it because there was a moment as I'm teaching Izzy to drive that, that you know, in that empty parking lot, it's, there's, there's nothing bad that can happen, but she's learning kind of the right, turning right is kind of tricky because you can't, you can't see that wheel over there and you can't see the curb next to you. And so she, it wasn't in her view that the curb was there, and she, we're only going like maybe seven miles an hour. And she, Dunk hits the curb, and they go stop. And Dunk, we fall down the curb. I go stop. And then she's gonna go up again. I finally go Izzy, stop. And she finally just, poof, rather than gently applying the brakes like she was doing, she hits the brakes like I wanted her to. Um. And afterward, I told her, I was like, oh, my gosh, am I, like, turning into my father? I'm yelling at her during, like, the driver moment here. It's like this happens to us all. My goodness. And, uh, <clears throat> but I told Izzy, I go, Izzy, I, wa- I didn't raise my voice because I'm mad at you. Uh, I raised my voice and said, stop again louder and louder as you approach that curb as I know it was coming because I wanted you to apply the pressure of the brake immediately because if had you to stopped, you wouldn't have hit the curb. And as you kept going, I knew that if this was a real-life situation, you didn't hit that break, you'd just be wandering off into oncoming traffic. So I was just trying to give her, this is my raising of the voice was because I wanted you to respond quickly to what I was saying. Not because I'm mad at you about what you've just done. I think John's doing something similar. He's coming hard. Not because he's just some angry, it's all like brim hellfire brimstone stuff. He's coming hard because the consequences are severe on the back end. And he's training up and readying a people so that when the word of God comes, when Jesus comes, they will respond and they will stop in their tracks when his word comes and receive it and hear it and believe it and obey. And not just, oh, okay, wanna make no like now. And this is John's ministry. Um, it cuts to the heart because he wants us to be prepared when Jesus comes. And then finally, this is my introduction. I've got to wrap this up in like a few minutes. Uh, verses 10 through 14. I haven't preached in a long time, so I've got a lot to say. And I got, I'm trying to, you know, anyway, this is good for me. So we'll learn how to edit on the fly. Verses 10 through 14, Luke then shows us real specific applications from a lot of different people. And he's teaching us about what repentance looks like, and it's not just lip service. Teach to the crowds and the tax collectors, and then to the soldiers, in fact, if you 're in church history, just quick fun fact: uh, the reformation of the church, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, you remember it if you remember church history at all uh, in the sixteenth century, it began this movement. Uh, with a German monk nailing ninety-five theological propositions to the castle church door in Wittenberg on October thirty-first, nineteen fifteen, which is Reformation Day, not Halloween. So you can start; we can rebrand that as Reformation Day. And you know this gentleman is uh, by the name of Martin Luther. You probably associate him rightly with the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And he preached it and he wrote about that constantly and it's this beautiful doctrine. But of those 95 theses that he nailed to the church door that launched the entire Protestant Reformation of us rethinking what it means to know and follow Jesus... The very first one states this. Number one, the first spark that sparked the Reformation, Luther says this. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, willed that the whole life of the believer should be repentance. Luther was drawing our attention to the vital reality of gospel repentance as a believer. And it's not surprising that John's ministry begins the exact same way. Repent. Jesus' ministry in Mark, his first words that are recorded in Mark's gospel are repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near, it's, oh, it's right there, it's at hand. Repent. So Jesus' ministry, John's ministry, and Luther and the Protestant Reformation reminds us all of this idea of repentance. Church, why is repentance important? Why is repentance the prelude to the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah? The Messiah, as John will say, or the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world, has come to do what? He's taken, he's come to take away sin. So the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, is to atone for sin, to provide a way for us wayward sinners, forgiveness of our sin, and to provide just and righteous basis whereby our loving Heavenly Father can forgive us. Now what could possibly inoculate us from this wonderful, glorious message of forgiveness? I think one thing in particular, or maybe a couple, it's the thought that we don't actually need forgiveness from our sin. It's, or we like to say it this way pointing out other people's sin and not owning our sin. So if Jesus came to forgive us of our sin, the thing that can make us miss the grand forgiveness of our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, is to not recognize the need that I personally have to have my sin atoned for and your sin atoned for, because we cannot do it on our own. Repentance is the recognition of our need for forgiveness of sin. And therefore, it is necessary for the forgiveness of sin. But, catch this, repentance does not bring about forgiveness. So you got to be careful here. You can repent all day. You can recognize your need for forgiveness. You can repent until the cows come home, but not have your sins atoned for because forgiveness only comes through the applied work of the blood of Jesus, the Jesus Christ, our Lord, giving you and granting you forgiveness. Repentance is the first step of recognizing our need. The sandpaper roughed up to say, I need help. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am your great Savior. And we embrace him. And then repentance and faith and salvation form this beautiful new life of obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. John makes it clear that repentance is necessary for forgiveness because we need to recognize our sin. Um. Church, what keeps us from repenting? I think it's often our concentration on other people's sin, as I said earlier. We live in a culture that we love to point out where everyone else is wrong, and we don't often like to take personal responsibility for where we're wrong and where we've messed up. We're, when we're so fixated on everyone else's Faults, failures, and sins that we do not see our own. Maybe sometimes we don't repent because of the wounds that someone else has given to you. Someone has hurt you. Um, someone's sin against you has happened. And so we're deeply wounded by those wrongs. We can't even see our own sometimes. Sometimes it's a desire, it's a self-protective desire that we want to protect ourselves from the shame or the humiliation should we disclose our sins, should we admit our faults. We don't want to be left humiliated. We don't want to be left destroyed. So we're, we're fearful to actually articulate where our great need for help is. And we don't want to admit our own. So we mask it and we don't say it out loud out of fear and shame of being humiliated. So, how then do we repent? Well, we repent by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. There's a helpful statement in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that answers this very question that does so better than ever I could articulate it, so I'm going to read it. The catechism goes like this. It has a question and it has an answer. And the question in the Shorter Westminster says, What is repentance unto life? Answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his own sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. Let me read it again. What is repentance unto life? Answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his or her sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. A couple things I want to draw our attention to in closing. That statement, a sinner out of true sense of his sin is this idea of owning our sin. Um, Yes, we can be sinned against. Yes, we can be wronged. But there is a real sense in the life of every human being in order to receive the forgiveness of the Messiah to come that we need to own up and we need to uh, come to a true sense and understanding of our sin. And then suddenly when we see it, when we feel it, the conviction of God's spirit comes on us and you realize it's more serious than you could have ever imagined and it's more grievous than all the sins that you want to point out to about everyone else in your life. And you want to take personal responsibility and then as you try to maybe skirt around it and, and go back to just pointing out everyone else's faults, the words of Jesus come ringing in. Hard and fast. And it says Jesus, Jesus tells us, hey, why don't you take the log out of your own eye before you uh, attempt with uh, little tweezers to get the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. Church, I think we live in an age that we'd rather be right than forgiven. Um, I think we'd rather be vindicated than forgive. And only the Holy Spirit can open us up to seeing our need for forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that comes to the second part. What does it mean to walk into repentance its to own our personal need uh, for forgiveness because of our personal sin? And the second thing in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's this beautiful statement. The apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. How can someone who is terrified of being exposed, terrified about The fact that someone might know that they haven't made it or that they're a sinner or that they've messed up or they've fallen. How do we reckon with that? The apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. It's looking up and it's seeing our Savior saying this. That sin of yours that you are so keenly aware of now, I've taken it to myself. I've borne it In my body on the tree. So that shame that you fear is now mine and it is nailed to the cross. And now what is yours and now what I've granted unto you, child of God, is the welcome of my Father that says come. No matter what you've done. So no longer do you live in shame and regret and guilt. You live in the grand colossal mercy of our Father through the vehicle of our Lord Jesus Christ and his blood applied to you, child of God. That is where I want to live. That's why I can easily repent and say I've failed and I've fallen. But his mercy is grand. And that propels us to that final thing of full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. When we receive that mercy and that outpouring and that forgiveness of those very places we need forgiveness from, it changes us. And to John's point here in Luke 3, a repentance that leads to fruit, that bears fruit so that now we as a people of God would reflect the... the the way of jesus we would be a generous people we would be people concerned with justice we would be a people concerned with uh, loving and serving the least of these we would be a people who would care about translating the bible to unreached people and be willing to let go of our our resources see more things happen we'd be we would be people that care about these students at journey school and and the love that they might receive through believers that would point them to the love of jesus so that we would let go of our two tunics because one is in need it produces a life of obedience that looks a lot like kingdom people. Um, it brings forth fruit, verse 8, in keeping with repentance. John calls us to this at the very beginning of his ministry, church. Jesus calls us to the same kind of repentance so that the mercy of God in Christ can flood our lives and change our patterns and ways and reroute our minds so that we would now be a people, a missional people on the move for the goodness of God and the glory of Christ displayed in our generation. I'm gonna invite the band back up and we are gonna respond this morning by taking the Lord's Supper. I think one of the ways that we can uh, acknowledge our our repentant hearts um, is through the taking of the Lord's Supper that we would say we are sinners in need of a savior. But thanks be to God that he gave us our Lord Jesus Christ who paid for all of those sins on the cross, that his body was nailed to that cross that's the bread that we're going to take as we remember him and the sacrifice that he made for us and that his blood was shed, the blood of the new covenant, spilled and poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that you and I, now as we repent and receive and believe in the Lord Jesus and all that he's done, can be now counted as sons and daughters of the king by his good mercies. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to have a station uh, right up here, Ashton and I will be up here, and we're going to have another station over here. And if you're gluten-free, I think we're going to have one uh, in the back as well. Um, I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, uh, feel free to just sit with the Lord for a moment. Think about where is it that I need to, in light of John's preaching, repent? And where do I need to, re- to repent of my own personal sins so that the floodgates of God's mercy may be opened up through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're ready, come and receive the mercy and forgiveness of God through Christ, through the Lord's table. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, you are uh, a good and merciful God. Thank you, Lord, that you can take messed up, broken, sinful people, a sinful person like me, And by your grace, pour out your mercy and forgiveness when we realize our need and we see our Savior. And so, God, I pray this morning that we would be a people. We would pattern our entire lives on repentance and faith, leading to the fruit of repentance, which is obedience in you. And so, God, I pray for these next few moments in this room. For each one that is here this morning, would they have a moment to reflect on their lives and their hearts and their minds, where are the places that need to be sandpapered down so that the gospel may be applied deeply and permanently in our lives. We would want to repent of those areas, God. And we want to receive your mercy. And thank you now, Lord, that as we come, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive and remember you the forgiveness of our sins through your body and blood. This day, in Christ's name we pray.